everyone. I'm Leslie Erdelak. And I'm Rob Lott. And you're listening to Health Affairs This Week. Rob, as we always say, this is a podcast where you can join a rotating cast of editors at Health Affairs for a look at the health policy news that grabbed our attention. And sometimes, you know, it's easy to just take a single headline and run with it. And other times, like this week, not so much. A lot going on. A lot going on. And that's why today we're taking a sort of grab bag approach and talking about three really distinct and notoriously contentious and in some ways really visceral topics, including childhood vaccinations legal challenges related to U.S.-Mexico border policy, and finally, harm reduction strategies and the overdose epidemic. So let's get into it. All right, Leslie. Yeah, eager to dig in here. Um, So I wanted to talk a little bit about childhood vaccination um, in light of a report last week from the CDC. This was the MMWR, Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Report that comes out from CDC. And this one highlighted the rate of routine childhood vaccination. And the big headline uh, to come out of it was that the rate has fallen. Um, Now, each state has its own requirements, but they're pretty similar. We're talking about uh, measles, mumps, and rubella vaccine, uh, DTaP, and varicella uh, vaccines, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Um, And the specific finding was that for the 2020-2021 school year, coverage reached uh, a level of 94% for all vaccines. And that is actually one percentage point lower than the previous school year. And Leslie, you may say, Rob, hey, one percentage point. That's uh, that's not too bad. That, That seems pretty minor. But if you think about the sheer number of kids in school, this equates to literally tens of thousands more students without a documented vaccination compared to the previous year. And when some of these are, you know, potentially concentrated in a single school or a single neighborhood, that can really mean the difference between a measles outbreak or not. Yeah. You know, I might've said 94%, you know, that coverage seems pretty good. That seems pretty high, but, um, Yeah, that's quite a drop um, when you put it like that. And, you know, I guess I have some ideas, but I wonder, did CDC point to any specific explanations? Yeah, Leslie, so as always, there's no one single answer. Uh, Not surprisingly, a few of the drivers uh, behind this drop are related to COVID-19. One is that fewer kids are enrolled in school, right, which is one of the main mechanisms where these requirements are enforced. Another is that more people, more kids specifically in this case, skipped their annual in-person wellness visit. You can remember, right, in sort of early 2020 when we were all avoiding the doctor's office uh, for anything other than a really serious emergency. Another potential reason for this drop-off is just uh, in terms of record-keeping or documentation, right? Because we know that so many schools are still sort of in triage mode. They've been for so long really just struggling to get teachers in front of every classroom, uh, let alone stay on top of state reporting requirements. So it's possible that the numbers may not truly reflect um, the state of vaccine coverage. And then finally, I want to mention that there's the fact that 
uh, anti-vax sentiment is on the rise, as we know well. And although there's no evidence of it in the MMWR report, one can imagine that some of the resistance to COVID-19 vaccination uh, may be bleeding into broader misinformation and confusion around vaccination or things like the value of herd immunity. So hot topic, it's gonna be interesting to see if this is just a blip on the radar for a year or two, or if it's part of a longer term trend. What happens now? Well, I think at its most basic, uh, we can hope that with the vast majority of schools now fully returned to in-person learning, uh, enforcement of vaccination policies and follow up with under-vaccinated students uh, should continue to creep back up um, and with it, hopefully, overall coverage rates. More generally, though, I think it's fair to say that there's sort of been a reckoning for state and local public health departments in the wake of COVID-19. What's their mission? What? Why did they struggle so much over the last two years? Um, and while I think it's fair to say that uh, promoting childhood vaccination, making them available, really does fall into uh, public health's uh, sweet spot or comfort zone and maybe uh, turning to this issue going forward um, may be able to help some of our uh, public health departments start to get their mojo back. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, how about you, Leslie? Uh, what have you been uh, looking at lately? Yeah. So I've been following what's going on with a policy called Title 42. Title 42 comes from a section of um, U.S. federal health law it dates back to 1944, and it was really meant to help prevent the spread of communicable diseases. It basically gives the U.S. government the ability to temporarily block non-citizens from entering the country when, according to the law, you know, doing so is required in the interest of public health. Title 42 was invoked in March 2020 to slow the spread of COVID-19. It allows authorities to expel migrants at the U.S.-Mexico border and prevents them from seeking asylum in the U.S. There have been 1.8 million expulsions under Title 42 in just over two years. Wow. Um, but the policy, you know, it was extremely volatile um, to begin with. There's always been this dispute around why Title 42 was put into place. Um, was the primary purpose really to protect public health, or was it born out of a more, you know, dubious or sort of nefarious political agenda? You know, a lot of immigrant rights activists have sort of accused officials of using public health as a reason to keep immigrants out of the country, even as we're seeing just a really stark humanitarian crisis play out in these makeshift camps and these communities along the southern border. So it's been a really um, protracted, uh, drawn out debate for a couple years now. The policy is scheduled to end on May 23rd. And now I think we're really starting to see the debate escalate around whether Ending Title 42 is justified, you know, given the current public health conditions and the increased availability of vaccines and treatment for COVID and whether immigration officials and, um, you know, especially communities along the U.S.-Mexico border, are they prepared to handle the increase um, that we're expecting to see 
in the number of people arriving at the border once that policy is lifted. So that's just a little bit of the backstory. But the newest development is that on Monday, a federal judge in Louisiana temporarily blocked the Biden administration from ending Title 42. Okay, so Leslie, tell me a little more about that. I know earlier this week on Tuesday, the Supreme Court heard oral arguments about the administration's Mm -hmm. attempt to terminate another policy, right, that requires asylum seekers to stay in Mexico while they wait sometimes for months or even years for a hearing in U.S. courts. That's a different program, but I imagine they're they're related or they're implications for each other. Yeah. So you're talking about the migrant protection protocols or what people call the remain in Mexico policy. And the Biden administration also tried to rescind that policy before the courts got involved. A decision on that case is expected to be handed down in June. But it really gets at the question of how much power, how much authority does the federal government, really the executive branch, I guess, uh, in particular, have in determining border and immigration policies. And so several states challenged the plan to lift Title 42. And that's why a federal judge stepped in. It's really similar to what happened in that other case. And here, states were arguing that certain procedures hadn't been followed when the administration said it was going to lift the policy. And um, this federal judge, you know, I'll just point out, only said he intended to grant the order. So right now, the details of that order remain to be seen, but there's a, a hearing scheduled for the middle of May. So that's just a few days before Title 42 is set to end. And so the policy could still be lifted um, as planned or it could be delayed. Depends on kind of what happens next in these court proceedings. And I'll also just add that I think this is an issue that could just so clearly benefit from well-designed research studies uh, to help us kind of understand that association between migration and COVID-19 transmission um, so that we, in turn, I think, have more of a basis for these policy decisions that affect so many people. Yeah, a lot more still to learn. Right. All right. Well, Leslie, let me jump briefly to our third item. Last week, the Biden administration released its national drug control strategy. Uh, Now, this, of course, comes at a moment when drug overdoses are just out of control. There was a recent report of the number of deaths from overdose reaching 106,000 during a single 12-month period. And so uh, we now have a plan which claims to focus on two key drivers, untreated addiction and drug trafficking. The piece aimed at drug trafficking is exactly what it sounds like. The administration says it's going to redouble its efforts to target the financial dealings of large transnational criminal organizations and focus on stopping supply at the border. I think the other piece, untreated addiction, as as they call it, is where the strategy really represents a welcome shift. So it's interesting, too, if you look at how the Office of National Drug Control Policy has sort of evolved um, over the last decade or so. I think it's really kind of embraced those principles of public health a little bit more. Yeah, that's exactly right. They're they're explicitly elevating harm reduction strategies. And this is the idea that we have to recognize there's a population of people currently struggling with addiction. 
for many, it's truly a chronic condition and just saying no to drugs or waging an all out war on drugs is not going to help these people. Instead, we can take steps to keep them safe, prevent the worst consequences of addiction and save lives. And as this report puts it, the focus needs to be on, quote, meeting people where they are and building trust and engagement with them to provide care and services. So important. So what does that look like in practice? Yeah, well, for one, it remains reducing barriers to treatment, but it also means increasing access to things like naloxone, drug test strips, syringe services programs. And um, the, the issue here is that we know some of the obstacles to these initiatives are at the state and local level. So the report calls for changes in state laws to allow for expanded harm reduction efforts and importantly, I think this is a this is a, a highlight collaboration between public health and public safety officials. Yeah, and it's uh, so the person in charge of the office now is, um, if believe it or not, the first medical doctor in that position, and um, he's also a former West Virginia public health commissioner. And so, you know, that's a state that has been so profoundly affected by the opioid epidemic. So I think. The perspective um, that he brings and the leadership is really valuable. Um, so thanks, Rob. I think I think that's all for this week. Thanks for helping us kind of break down these stories. Um, it's always interesting to see where the conversation goes. Absolutely. Thanks, Leslie. Uh, to our listeners, subscribe, recommend the podcast to a friend, and tune in next week. Thanks. Thanks.